Okay, take out your Bible, open it to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. We've got a bunch of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to jump right in. Chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 27. We're picking up the story in the very last passage of a larger section that we've entitled, The Road to Jerusalem. And Jesus and his disciples began back in Nazareth some three years prior. They have been on the road to Jerusalem this whole time. Next week we'll open the scripture and Jesus will be entering Jerusalem triumphal entry on the back of a donkey for the last week of his life on earth. And that'll be the last section of the book of Luke that we study together. Now, don't get your hopes up. It's still about 25 weeks before we finish the gospel of Luke, but it is the last week of Jesus's life. Okay. So we began this journey in this section in uh, chapter nine, verse 51, back in October. We've been in this section for 10 months and we'll finish it today and then pick it up there in Jerusalem next week. Now, I want you to know that this passage is a parable. It's one of the last parables that Jesus teaches. He'll teach one more in Jerusalem, and it's a bit long. The story is is a bit long, but I want us to read it so that we can have this story in our heads as we attempt to unpack the spiritual meaning of it, the spiritual truth that Jesus has for us this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word and join me as I do just that. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. I'm going to say this here. There's a they here, while they. I want you to know that they here is is the group in Jericho that have just seen Zacchaeus come to faith. There's disciples in the group. There's religious leaders, all kinds of people in this crowd. That's the context for where we pick it up. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said... A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves, gave them ten minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But the citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that they might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. To him he said, Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over ten cities. Second came saying, Your mina, Master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you also are to be over five cities. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. Jesus said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Father, we ask that you add your blessing to the reading of your word. Spirit, would you open our eyes that we might see it clearly and apply it directly to our own personal lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can grab your seat. 
Let's start with the obvious. This is not an easy parable. It's not easy to understand. It's not easy to explain. It's not easy to find consensus among evangelical scholars who, who agree on all parts of this text. It's not easy to find that. I'll tell you this, here's what I mean by that. You know, when we look at the text, we, ha- we have some questions that just start popping out. You read it a couple of times and we say, well, what do we, what do, we do with the unfaithful servant? What do we do with the worthless slave? The guy who takes the money and, and buries it in his sock drawer. What, what do we do with that guy? The king returns. He said, man, what'd you do with the money? Nothing. You worthless slave. He gives the money to somebody else. Is that guy a Christian or, or is he not a believer? Is he a a believer who just doesn't get any reward or is he someone who doesn't trust in Christ who just happened to be there on the day that the the king gave the instructions? Which is it? Or or what do we do with the the enemies at the end? They they were the the citizens at the beginning. They become the enemies at the end. It says that that, uh, the nobleman says or the king says, bring them here so that I might slay them. We don't know if he actually slays them. The question is, does he in fact judge them? Or or does he in fact offer them grace? And and, and is this judgment, is it it talking about the the final judgment at the end of the world as we know it? Or is it in fact talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? What about the parable of the talents back in in Matthew? Is, Is this the same parable just told in a different context, told a little bit differently? Is it, is it similar or, or, or is it different altogether? How do we take what we know from the parable of the talents and apply it here or, or do we do that at all? See, if we're not careful this morning, we could leave here with more questions than answers. We could leave here and miss the meaning of, of the parable, the, the spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching in this story. Now, certainly there's more than one thing that we, that we can gain from this story, but, but we miss it when we, when we don't make the main thing the main thing. So, so here's what I want to do this morning as we get started. I, I want to take just a moment here to remind us how we study parables. We've done this in bits and pieces along the way, but I want to remind us so that we don't miss what Jesus has for us right here. So so let me just start this way. We miss it. We miss the meaning of the parable when we read too much into the story. When we make more of what's there than what is actually there. We miss it when we do that. When we dive too far into the detail, this is a story told to illustrate a point. I told you just a couple of weeks ago, my, my favorite story as a young boy was the little engine that could. That, that's a story that illustrates a point. What's the big idea? The little engine could. That's it. I, I don't remember all the other engines. I don't remember all the pictures. I just remember the point. It, it's a bit simplistic, but it's similar here. Story used to illustrate a point. So we miss it if we read too much in the story. We, we miss it if we try to answer questions that are unanswered in the story. We miss it. Many, many of the questions that I just mentioned a moment ago. Those are not all the questions in the text. There's lots more. But we miss it if we make the parable about those questions. If we take one question or two questions and build theological constructs or spiritual meaning off questions that are unanswered in the text. Now, it's not wrong to ask questions. I spent a lot of my time this week reading and thinking about those questions. What does other scripture have to say? So if you've got questions that come up as we teach or as I teach this morning, please feel free to come grab me in between or grab 
Grant Michael or Lloyd and, and ask us, be glad to share with you what we're learning about some of those things, but we just simply miss the meaning of the parable if we make it all about those things. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Third thing is this, we, we miss it. We miss it if we don't step into the sandals of the original audience in Jericho. We'll miss it. You see, we might ask this question, if it's difficult or if it can be confusing, then why does, why does Jesus teach in parables? That's a really good question. The answer to that is because he's speaking to a specific audience at a specific time in a specific place. It's 33 AD. He's in Jericho. He's speaking to a group of Jews primarily. There's some Romans probably mixed in, mostly Middle Eastern. And this audience, this cultural and historical context helps us a lot with the story because the original audience would have just been clicking right with him. Like, like we get it. Okay, yeah, just, just tracking right with Jesus. It's not unlike when Michael Lloyd or, or I stand up here and, and we illustrate some spiritual truth with a, a cultural context from today. When we, when we talk about uh, the Olympics, uh, which by the way, we are dominating in the Olympics. <laughs> like I watch that medal count three times a day. I, I looked at it this morning, 104, next one's 91. It is over. I'm loving it. Had no idea I was such a patriot, right? I watch every night, metal count, let's go. Yeah, Olympics, I'm way off track. Olympics, or social issue, or political issue, or something that happened to us last week, we, we use that cultural relevance that all of us just get right off the bat to illustrate a spiritual truth. That's what Jesus is doing here, okay? So here's, here's where we are. We, we got a people who understand what Jesus is talking about. And we're going to put ourselves in their shoes so that we can get the historical context. That's where we are. So, so let's do just that. Here's the context. Jesus is leaving Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. It's about a 17-mile journey, probably take them a day or two to get there. This is the last stop on the way to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Passover, as big a festival as, as there is in the Jewish religious culture, it's just huge. Passover celebrates what? Festival that celebrates the freedom from slavery and bondage to Egypt. We're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You can feel the momentum building in the crowd that's with Jesus. Jesus' kingdom is coming. He's going to Jerusalem. We've been on the road all this time. It's the Passover. We're celebrating freedom from Egypt. This will be the place where we celebrate freedom from Rome. Jesus, the king, is going to throw off Roman rule, Roman authority, Roman oppression politically and economically, and restore our great nation, Israel, as the God's chosen people with our greatest king. That's Jesus. That's what's going to happen here. And no matter how many times Jesus tries to clarify things about his kingdom, they can't get out of their heads that this is not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. You see, they confuse reconciliation. Track with me here just for a minute. They confuse reconciliation, what will happen in Jerusalem, where Jesus does get on a cross and reconcile all of mankind to his Father. They confuse that act of reconciliation with consummation. 
the fullness and completion of Jesus' kingdom. That's not coming for a while. There's going to be a delay. You see, we've talked about this. You've been here any of the last four weeks. You know this. The kingdom is both already, Jesus is king, going to demonstrate that in Jerusalem, and it's not yet, won't be fully realized until Jesus comes again. So Jesus tells this story to clarify his kingdom one more time. And it's a story about a nobleman who does what? A nobleman who goes away for a while to receive a kingdom so that he might come back and rule as king. That, that's the story. What should remind us of what? Kingdom of God. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, die on a cross, raise from the grave, ascend into heaven, be gone for a while, and then come back to rule and reign as king. That, that's the context of the story. That's the picture. Now, in the story... Jesus first introduces us to a group of people he calls citizens. Citizens who later become enemies. This is a group of people who reject the king and oppose the kingdom. That's what they do. In fact, they send a delegation after this nobleman when he leaves town to the governing authority abroad to say the governing authority abroad. I'll explain this in a minute. We don't want this man to be king. We hate this man is what the text says. Literally do not want him to reign over us. And this is where the historical context is so important. This is where we've got to step into the sandals. People listening get this. Why? Because they've experienced this in their lifetime. In the last 30 years, not one, but two authorities in Israel went away to Rome to receive full kingship and came back to rule, Herod and his son Archelaus. In both instances, a contingent of Jews from Jerusalem went to Rome to say, we don't want this guy to be king. Don't want Herod to be king. Later, we don't want Archelaus to be king. In both instances, Roman authority gives approval for those two men to come back and rule and reign. Audience gets it right off the bat. Understand the context. That's happened in my lifetime. And Jesus says, well, my kingdom's similar. I'm king, going away for a while, coming back to establish my kingdom. And in the interim, there's some work to be done for those who are my servants. There's some responsibility that I'm going to entrust to servants to do the work of the kingdom until I come back. And that really is the meat of this passage where we're introduced to these two types of servants, basically a faithful one and an unfaithful one. And I think that we can learn something from each of them. And I believe that when we do, when we learn something from each one of these servants, when we learn something from them, I believe it will unlock the meaning of the parable for us. And we will, in fact, be able to keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, let's look at the faithful servant first, okay? Here's the context. Uh, a nobleman's getting ready to leave. He gives one mina each to each of 10 servants. Mina is money. It's equal to about three months worth of wages. He gives clear instructions about what to do with the money. Go put this money to work for the kingdom. Go invest it. Go earn a return on it. There are clear instructions. And we find in this case that there are two faithful ones that come back. There may have been more. We know of two here. They're mentioned. One who returns 10 minas based on his investment. 
and the other who returns five minus based on that investment. Now, I want you to look at verse 16 for just a minute. The king has returned, and he asked the servants for an account. In the first servant, verse 16 says this, Master, your mina has made ten more. Do you want to grab those two words just for a minute? Your mina. Interesting that he would say your mina in verse 18. Second servant says the same thing. Your mina master has made five minas. Well, what does that mean? It just means that they view the mina that it's not theirs. They're not owners of the mine. It's yours. You hear the humility in the statement of the faithful servant. They view themselves as stewards of what the nobleman has become king entrusts to them. And all they are is simply, listen, faithful with it. They're just faithful with what's entrusted to them. Faithful to do the instructions that are told to them. Faithful to carry that out. In fact, we learn here that that the master praises their faithfulness, not their successfulness. And that's what we learn from the faithful servant, in fact, that Jesus cares more about our faithfulness than he does our successfulness. I, I love the mission of the church, not just our church, the church at large, the great commission. The mission of the church is that we... Uh, servants of the king are to be faithful with the gospel message. We're to be faithful to proclaim Christ. We're to be faithful to grow up in our faith, to mature and to help others do the same. We're, we're to be faithful with, with giving our lives away that, that others might see the way we live and glorify God. We're to be faithful with what's entrusted to us. God is in charge of the successfulness. God's in charge of the results. We couldn't build a big church if we had the greatest marketing strategy on the planet. We couldn't. Why? Because God's in charge of that. Entirely in charge of the results. What's my responsibility? I'm to be faithful with the mina. We'll unpack what that means here in just a minute. That's my responsibility. And I believe this. I, I believe that if we would actually take that at face value it would turn our world upside down. I do. Why? Because we value successfulness, don't we? Our culture sure does. But don't we personally and individually as well? I do. I value achievement, performance, other people viewing me as successful. It's it's about successfulness. I'm fighting that all the time. Faithfulness, that's great, but it just feels a little too small, right? Well, watch what Jesus says here in verse 17. Look at this. Because you are faithful in a very little thing, you're going to have greater responsibility in heaven. Ten cities for one, five cities for another. Because you're faithful in a very little thing, your responsibility will only increase. And I don't have time to get into all this right now, but please know this. What we do on earth, what we do in the in-between with what God has entrusted to us, what we do with that will be rewarded in heaven. How? Not with a great retirement plan, not with a great 401k. It'll be rewarded with additional responsibility, additional service for the king, which will be our greatest privilege and our greatest joy. Why? Because that, that service to the king, the one true king, is the, what we were made for. That, that's how we were created and designed. 
I just want to say this just because we have some misperceptions about heaven. All of us do. We're not going to spend the next billion years singing in heaven. We're not. Uh, We'll sing some, but we're going to work some. And I'll just tell you this, every morning when you wake up, if in fact we do wake up in heaven, every morning when when you wake up, your all-consuming thought will be, I can't wait to go to work. And if that's true there, we might as well begin that work now. We might as well. Hudson Taylor says this, he was a great missionary to China. He says, a little thing is just a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. It is now and it is forever to come. Why? Because the kingdom is already Jesus' king. We're servants of the king and his kingdom is coming in his fullness. We'll spend the rest of our lives serving him with additional responsibility, rewarded in heaven in that way. Okay, that's the faithful servant. Got it? Faithfulness, not successfulness. Here's the unfaithful servant. We can learn something from him as well. In the story, we know this, that when the master returns, the servant takes the money out of the sock drawer and he returns it to the master. And we know that he re- returns it and, and, and it's not changed. Nothing's happened with the money. It's still in the same scarf, still in the same order as when he put it in the sock drawer. And knowing that he didn't obey the master's clear instructions, he immediately goes on the defensive, doesn't he? He blames the master. He takes shots at his character. This guy is actually delusional. His argument for why he didn't do anything with the money, because I think you might be mad that I didn't do anything with the money, is actually an argument to do something with the money. It's totally hypocritical. And of course, the master, the king, he, he condemns the, the servant, not because his view of the master's character, which is way off. No, he condemns him on the basis of his own hypocritical words. Takes his money, gives it to the guy with 10 minus. You see, I think this servant succumbs to the opposition in the city. Remember the citizens, the enemies, they're actively, actively against the rule of this king. They're loud in the city. They send a delegation after the nobleman. They don't want him to be king. I, I think this servant starts listening to the opposition. And the opposition is inevitable. Opposition to the kingdom, rejection of the king. It's inevitable for all of us who live in the in-between. I I think this guy's listening. He hears the stuff out in the city. He he, he watches the political rallies on CNBC, right? He, he, He gets calls at night from the citizen party chairman. Watches the delegation go. He he hears the mudslinging and he begins to wonder, is this king really coming back or not? Is this king really trustworthy? begins to believe some of the attacks on his character. And and because he's not sure which horse is going to win, in other words, he's not sure if the king's going to come back or if this political group of citizens in the city is going to raise up their man, their person for authority and leadership because he don't know, he doesn't know which is going to win. And and because the last thing he wants is is to be in the city working uh, on behalf of the nobleman if the nobleman isn't coming back because then he'd just ruin all credibility altogether. Because he doesn't want those things, I I think he just goes, he takes it, he buries it in his sock drawer and he just kind of hopes to lay low and ride it out. Of course, what happens? 
king returns. Oh boy, trouble, right? Trouble. And what does the king say? This is what I think we can learn from the unfaithful servant. Here's the principle. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. You will be held accountable. That's the principle. Doesn't matter if you believe he's coming back or not. Doesn't matter if you believe that what he entrusted to you, you should actually do something with it. Doesn't matter if you actually believe that. You will be held accountable, citizen or slave, faithful or unfaithful, held accountable. Why? Because the king is coming back. That's why. He's coming back. I'll say it just a bit stronger. Judgment is coming for everyone. It is. It really is. But please hear me on this. Don't don't tweet just that. That's not the whole story. Here's the rest of the story. Judgment is coming for everyone, but and that creates some healthy fear and angst in us. It should, but it doesn't have to terrify us. Why? Because it's a kind and gracious warning to those who reject Jesus, the citizens. How? Hey, the king's coming back. I want you to know that he's going to rule and reign forever. Guess what? More than anything, he desires relationship with you. You can become a servant of the king. There's still time. It's a kind and gracious warning to those who do not know Christ. He's coming back. Just want you to be aware of that. Why? So that you will join his kingdom. So that you will become a servant of the king in the in-between. That, that's God's grace that he might warn us of that. Do you see that? So that's the first part. Here's the second. It's also a reminder of the blessing for faithful servants. See, this is where it doesn't have to terrify us. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be successful. We're just entrusted to be faithful. And if we're faithful, what's the response? Lavish, generous blessing for eternity to come. Hey, you, you were faithful. Ten cities, Boston, L.A., New York, all yours. Hey, you were faithful. Five cities, Shreveport, Monroe, you got, you got all those, <laughs> Right? Right? No, yeah, lavish, generous blessing unless you're from Arkansas, right? Like I am. It is, it's the truth. Now, here's the thing. That's hope for us. It really is. Gracious warning to the non-believer. A reminder of God's favor to the one who is faithful. Okay, get it. But what is it that I'm to be faithful with? What does the mina represent? What's, what's the meaning of the mina? If, if the nobleman refers to Jesus, get that. If the citizens refer to those who reject Jesus, those who don't believe in him or trust in him, uh, we got the slaves, the servants, there's a faithful one and an unfaithful one. What what am I to be faithful with? And how, in fact, am I to be faithful with it? This is what I think. And I'm not dogmatic here because uh, mine certainly could refer to money, our stewardship of the resources that God, in fact, does entrust to us. So it, it could mean that. There are great great evangelical scholars that think that. There are others that think other things. Here's where I am after studying it all week. I'll just say it this way. I believe that it's broader than that. I think it encompasses all that, certainly. But I think it also, there is more. I think what Jesus is referring to here is the gospel. That what he entrusts to us to do work with for the kingdom is the gospel message. The very thing that we've believed, he entrusts to us to spread, to build, and to multiply. What's the gospel? Gospel simply this. 
Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. We call that perfect righteousness. No sin in him, no pride, no selfishness, no nothing in him. He stepped up on a cross to die for our unrighteousness, our sin nature. Everyone else is in that camp except for Jesus. And because he stood on that cross, paid the penalty for our sin, God the Father sees us not in our unrighteousness, but through his righteousness. He actually sees us as righteous because of what Jesus did dies that we might be reconciled to God, raises from the grave, demonstrating his power over sin and death, and invites his servants to be faithful with that same message until he returns again. That's what I think Jesus is talking about here, and I'll tell you why. Uh, Certainly, it would fit the context of of the immediate scriptures around it. In the context before, the passage before, Zacchaeus is up in a tree. Jesus tells him to come down. Zacchaeus is saved. Jesus makes this powerful statement. This is my purpose now and forever to come. I came to what? To seek and save the lost. That's all salvation. That's all the gospel. The work that Jesus does on earth is the work of salvation, right? Where's Jesus going? Headed to Jerusalem. He's going to do in Jerusalem. He's going to get on a cross to do what we cannot do for ourselves. He's going to get on a cross to save us. Immediate context supports that the minor refers to the gospel. But I'll go a step farther, and this is what tips the scale for me. I want you to look down at verse 13. Look at 13 just, just for a moment. The noble man gives each servant an equal amount. Okay, one minus each, 10 minus four, 10 servants, an equal amount. This distinguishes this parable from the one in Matthew, the parable of the talents, where each is given a different amount. And it teaches there that we are all to use our different gifts for the work of the kingdom. Here, each servant is given the same amount. And and while the gift in this thing certainly is true in Matthew, I think this parable is more about faithfulness, right? It's what Jesus calls the faithful servant. He's faithful that it is giftedness. Every believer has received the same gospel message. Every believer has the same responsibility to build and expand the kingdom until Jesus returns again. Why did Jesus leave us here? Well, why didn't he just take us with him when he ascends into heaven? Because the gospel had not gone everywhere yet. Just in Israel, hadn't gone beyond those geographic boundaries. Because Jesus still needed to do the work of the gospel to all the nations through who? Through the church. Through the faithful servants that call him Lord through the ones who have already believed that gospel for themselves. That's how the gospel is spread. And the gospel encompasses every area of our lives, right? Certainly encompasses our money. That fits the context of the gospel. What we do with our possessions and resources, it, it, it's everything. It's my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids, my integrity at work, what I do with my time. The gospel encompasses every single aspect of our lives. And the gospel, when embraced, is lived in such a way that by our very lives and by our very words, it is proclaimed to the nations and accomplishes the work of the kingdom. 
Okay, I said that when we learn something from the servants, we would unlock the meaning of the parable. So I'm going to take a shot at the main thing. The spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching here, here, here it is in one sentence. Be faithful with the gospel until Jesus comes back. That's it. Be faithful with the gospel until Jesus comes back. That, that's the point of the parable. You, you want to know what the will of God is for your life? The will of God. What, what is it right now for your life? Be faithful with the gospel until he comes back. You want to know God's purpose for your life? God's purpose and plan for your, your life right now? Be faithful with the gospel until he comes back. You want to know how to glorify God? Glorify God with your whole life to, to, to glorify him for what he's done for you? Faithful with the gospel until he comes back. You see, the point of the parable has been staring at us all morning. That's verse 13 right there. Do business with this. Do business with the gospel until I come back. Literally translated there, while I am coming back. There is no uncertainty in Jesus. While I'm coming back, be faithful with the gospel. Bill, how do we do that? I'll end it here. Well, I think it's simpler than we think. I've been studying the book of Acts. You know, Luke wrote Luke, obviously, and, and he also wrote the book of Acts in connection to it. Book of Acts is simply the story of the early church. It, it takes the weeks and months and years right after this next week of Jesus's life and just unpacks what happens. And in the book of Acts, it's, it's one of my favorites. The, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, this men and women, uh, those that are trusting Christ, th- that group of people, here's what they do. Here's what they do with the gospel. Here's how they do business for the kingdom. They proclaim it boldly. That's what they do. That message of of what the gospel is that I just told you a few minutes ago, they just go around saying that. This is who Jesus is. This is what what he did. They're bold with it. Hey, hey, you Jews, y'all killed him, but he's your Messiah. I mean, they're straight up. Here's what he's done in my life. He's changed me. He's transforming me. He has saved me from my sin. They, they just go and go and go proclaiming the gospel. That, that's what they do. You know what they do next? They celebrate what God does. Right? God's in charge of successfulness. Hey, listen to what God in Jerusalem. Peter got up and taught the gospel. 3,000 people came to Christ. Hey, Paul went to Antioch. Listen to what happened. He got thrown in jail for a while. That was a little bit of a downer. But then he got out and a bunch of people trusted Christ. They come back, they tell each other on the road, they come back to Jerusalem, they sin out again. Proclaim the gospel, they celebrate what God does. And here's the last thing, they believe God for more of it. That's the entire book of Acts. You don't ever have to read it again. That's it. It's the entire book of Acts over and over and over again. They just believe God for more of it. I was thinking about that in my own personal devotion this week and I thought, you know what? That's exactly what happens in the story. The king entrusts the gospel to his servants to do what? To proclaim it, to do business with it, to invest it, to spread it, to build and multiply it. What happens? King comes back and they said, hey, here's what happened. They celebrate it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Celebrate it. And then what happens? I'm giving you responsibility for more. They believe God for more of it. See, the question for you and me is, Will you be faithful with the gospel until Jesus comes back?